0: Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter twenty-two. Acts twenty-two. Our sermon text this morning is particularly long. Uh, it is the end of chapter twenty-two and all of chapter twenty-three. So, um, I'd ask you, I guess, to 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 gird up your minds for uh, the reading of God's word. Acts chapter twenty-two, beginning in verse twenty-two, up to this. Word. they listened to him and they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this and when they had stretched him out for the whips Paul said to the centurion who was standing by Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do, for this man is a Roman citizen? So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection nor angel nor spirit but the Pharisees acknowledge them all Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply We find nothing wrong in this man What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him And when the dissension became violent the tribune afraid that Paul Would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink. Till they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine the case, his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For there are more than 40 of their men, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Ro- Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I uh, brought, um, i lost my place. I learned, and desiring to know the charge which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who uh, inspired Luke to write these words, inspired the very words themselves, who you have preserved them. uh, Would you be at work in them, through them? Uh, Would you use them uh, to grow our faith? to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Perhaps you've um, seen it on the news. Perhaps you've seen pictures, videos on social media. Um, Maybe uh, you've heard kind of people talking about it, but um, there are all sorts of responses out there in the world around us. to uh, the COVID-19 quarantining thing, uh, the shelter in place orders and, uh, and safer at home kinds of orders uh, that we've had here in Alabama. There've been pictures, videos, news reports of, of people gathering at, at state house grounds or at local courthouses to, to protest screaming and yelling, open the state now, open the borders now, Uh, open our jobs now. This is ridiculous stuff. And some of them are protesting in camo and armed, like with guns. I don't exactly understand that, but uh, there are all sorts of people um, trying to protest this notion of uh, a closed, um, that our country is closed, or that our our state is closed, their state is closed. You've had conversations with people who uh, think the whole thing is a joke, who think the whole thing is a farce, who think that, that it's all um, made up, it's not nearly as bad, and, and you hear it all the time, people die of the flu, people die of this, people die of that, and um, we don't quarantine. Um, you've also had conversations with people who think we aren't taking it seriously enough, who think we aren't doing as much as we should. And we should, we should all be forced to wear masks all the time um, and, and quarantine as much as possible. Uh, There are people on wherever you are on your opinion of how this has been handled locally, state nationally. There is somebody who is more concerned than you are, and there is somebody who is less concerned than you are. But this raises a question for the church. It raises a question for us as believers. Well, it raises a bunch of questions, quite honestly, um, as evidenced by the fact that we're recording uh, sermons and and worship services and such. But one of the questions that it asks uh, for us is, how should we as Christians, how should we as the church, how should we as believers respond to those in authority over us? Can we dismiss everything they say? Uh, can we? Should we call them names on Twitter and Facebook? Uh, do we have to take it without, without any recourse at all? Do we have to do everything they say without ever seeking some sort of Of legal counsel, advice. These are all questions that we as believers have to ask and answer. And this passage helps shed some light on that. Because Paul, in this passage, reminds us what it means to be a citizen of multiple kingdoms. Paul's a Roman citizen, he's a Jew by birth but he's really the citizen of a yet greater kingdom. Paul was mobbed in the temple. He was uh, grabbed by the, the Roman soldiers. They have a, a barracks right there. They have a fortress right next door to the temple uh, at this time. And so they ran in and grabbed him and dragged him off, um, partly to, to protect him from the crowd and partly to get to the flog him themselves. Um, he shared his testimony of saving faith with the very people that wanted to kill him, um, and then was once more saved by the soldiers. They began, as we read, the very beginning of the passage uh, we just read was really the tail end of the passage from last week. We kind of overlapped them uh, a little bit. Um, the, the The Roman Tribune, the 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 ranking officer in the uh, fortress uh, right next to the temple, uh, still didn't understand. He wanted to know uh, what um, what Paul's problem was, what problems he had caused that these Jews would be in such an outrage against him. He wanted to know what Paul had done. And so the soldiers took him upstairs um, to get information out of him in verse 24, 25. Uh, they stretched him around a, a pole and got ready to to whip him, to flog him. Uh, you know, this is no ordinary whip. Um, glass, bone, um, metal, stone—all kind of tied into the ends of this of this flog. It's designed to uh, not just to inflict pain. It's designed to actually rip open the back but as we saw just a minute ago it's actually illegal to flog a roman citizen membership as a roman citizen really did have its privileges but it as it turns out it's actually quite a privilege to be a citizen of rome Perhaps you've known people who um, have come here to the United States from other parts of the globe and, and they've waited and they've wanted to become citizens. They've petitioned uh, the, their senator, they've petitioned the government, they've applied, they've gone through a background check, they've they've had a period of waiting, they took a test, they took an oath, and then boom, they're U.S. citizens. Well, there are a couple of ways you could have become an official citizen of Rome. One was by birth, which as we see, that was Paul's story. Another was to have been granted citizenship through, because of some heraldry at war, or through some service rendered to the state. Or, you could buy it. It's, it's a bribe. It's, it's a, it is essentially boils down to bribing somebody. I will pay you this large chunk of change. And as it turns out, this tribune, whose name is Claudius Lysias, we learn in verse 26, he paid for his citizenship, probably during the time of Emperor Claudius, which is where he gotten his name. And so Paul is there in that room in the barracks and stretched out around a pole or spread out somehow and ready to be uh, flogged. And notice his response. See, he knows something the Roman soldiers don't know, and that is that he is a Roman citizen, and what they are about to do is against the law. But notice how he reacts. He simply asks the question. You know, you think of all the times we get caught up in demanding our rights. I have a right to this, and I have a right to that. And, and sometimes, perhaps, in demanding our rights, we forget biblical principles. Paul could have screamed and yelled. He could have grabbed his phone and kind of taken pictures and quickly posted their pictures on social media and then sought his recourse. Instead, he simply asked. He reminded the soldier, you know, there's a law, and it's a law that forbids you from flogging me because I'm a Roman citizen, and in fact, you you figure out the fact that um, in verse 28, 29, that Paul says, "Like I'm a citizen by birth," and and Claudius Lysias um, admits, "Well, I paid for mine," and and in that moment, he realized that Paul actually has a higher status than he does, despite the fact that he has. Authority, as the tribune, as the ranking member of this fortress. Paul's not demanding his rights. He's not kicking and screaming. He's not causing all kinds of trouble. But he is making use of every lawful means available to him To preserve not just the law but himself. You know, I think there are Christians out there who think: A, my right to bear arms, my right to this or that means that I can do it and and I can break the law in the process and I can step on everyone and it doesn't matter because these are my rights and I can exercise my rights. I think there are believers out there who think, you know, I'm a Christian, and this this government's going to persecute Christians, and so really whatever mistreatment they send my way, I should take. I, I have to take it, and I should, because, of course, that's more spiritual. I then get to say, well, I was beaten and battered or mistreated because of Christ. We might even take pride in our mistreatment on Um, at the hands of unbelievers, which that, of course, in, in and of itself is a problem. But notice, as Christians, we have the right to whatever lawful means are available to us to protect ourselves. The centurion, the Roman tribune, they're about to violate Roman law, and Paul grabs hold of that law as his defense. The next day, verse 30, Paul stands before an actual council, uh, but it's not a real trial. It really is sort of a pre-trial hearing kind of a concept. Um, the The Jewish council has been called By Claudius Lysias, it appears, Um, he urged them to meet and to invite Paul so that he could try to figure out exactly what was going on. It turns out he was um, in um, a pretty good relationship with both the Jewish council and with Rome, and so he kind of uh, politically played both sides of the fence as much as he could and as much as he needed to but you notice there's something missing in verse 30 through verse 10, quite honestly. Um, Never does the council ask a question. Nowhere does the council say, Paul, we're glad you're here. Here are the charges against you. We need you to answer these charges. Nowhere does the council ever ask a question. They're in the room And that's it. Instead, Paul begins to speak. And in fact, verse 1, he gets one sentence in, and he's already in hot water. He's already in trouble. Notice his sentence. Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience, up to this day. Now, look, he's not claiming to be sinless. Paul has, will later write that he's the chief of sinners. He's not, he's not claiming that he's never violated God's law. He's not claiming uh, to be sinless. He's simply saying that I have a good and clean conscience before God, his conscience is clear. You remember the claim by the council initially? You remember the claim by the Jews back in the in the temple? He's disrespected the temple and these people and, uh, and Moses. He's, in effect, entering a not guilty plea. He's not really on trial, but he's put them on notice. I'm not guilty with the things that you say I'm guilty of. He hasn't violated... the the customs of Moses or the temple, or hated the people as they have accused him. Look at what happens in verses 3 to 5. For one thing, we have information that Paul didn't have. Luke adds a phrase in verse 2 so that we know that Ananias is the high priest. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him. Paul doesn't realize who this man is. He's not in his in his in his official robes. Um, it was a hastily called count. Any number of reasons why that might be the case. And so the high priest orders. Smack him on the mouth. He should be punished for what he just said, accusing me. Are you going to sit and judge me according to the law? Paul actually lashes out in anger at the high priest. God is going to strike you, strike you, you whitewashed wall. You look good on the outside but it's merely external. It's merely an outward and external righteousness. It's not an inward one. And for that, Paul was rebuked in verse 4 for speaking ill, uh, for lashing out in anger, uh, for reacting the way he did to the high priest. And Paul, verse 5, admits his guilt. I didn't know he was the high priest. And for that matter, he then quotes Exodus 22, verse 28, to the council. Oh, that's right. The Bible said, it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He didn't have his Bible handy. He didn't go... Wait, hold on. I, I think that's in the Bible. Let me grab my phone and scroll through the Bible, do a search real quick on Bible Gateway. He rattled off right on from the, the tip of his tongue, Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He's admitting in that moment that he sinned against God and this high priest. He's admitting that he's violating a clearly given command of God. And as far as I'm aware, this is the only place in the whole Bible where we have um, that kind of clear, here Paul is in sin and even admitting as much and repenting of it. There've been other places, I've, I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, there were debates, should he have done this? Should he have, those weren't sin issues. Those were wisdom issues. And we're not even clear whether he was right or somebody else was right, or it's not real clear. But this is the only place I know of where we have a real clear example of Paul in sin and repenting of his sin. This passage reminds us that you and I, as believers, are called to treat. The office with respect, even if the man himself is not worthy of it. And Ananias was, um, would actually be uh, removed from office about a year or so after this and, and then murdered um, because he uh, was entirely too friendly to Rome. But that doesn't give Paul the right to mistreat him, to, to lash out at him, um, to call him names, to, to spew venom at him. Even a terrible high priest is still the high priest and is still a ruler of the people. And therefore, you should not speak evil of a ruler. In fact, by this time, Paul had already written Romans 12 when he tells us in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. He's already written Romans 13 when he says, pay to all what is owed. And at the end of that sentence, honor to whom honor is due. So you and I as believers would do well to... Learn to speak well of those in authority over us, to honor and respect the office, even if the person in it uh, wouldn't be worthy of respect. Watch what does, Paul does next in the in the in the middle of this council. Paul can read a room, he knows who's there, he knows. He understands and, and knows his theology. He was raised as a Pharisee, so he so he understands the Pharisees in the room, um, and their Sadducees in the room. And you can almost picture the the U.S. House of Representatives with a center aisle, or the State of the Union address with all the conservatives on one side, all the liberals on the other, all the Democrats on one side, all the Republicans on the other. And and you can almost picture that here with the the Pharisees were the conservatives. Um, The Sadducees were the liberals, and and we're told they don't acknowledge resurrection, angel, or spirit. They don't believe in a resurrection. They have no future hope. They're sad, you see. So that's how you can remember uh, what the the Sadducees believed or didn't believe. Paul split the room by claiming to be on trial for believing in the resurrection. You see what he says in verse 6, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And you can almost picture him say that and then kind of back up out of the way and let the crowd go at each other. In fact, it got violent. the, The dissension got violent in verse 10. And so the tribunes have to send had to send soldiers in to get him and to bring him back out again, again for his safety and protection. The Pharisees are prepared to acquit him. We find nothing wrong in this man. And then, in verse 9, and then they even suggest the possibility that he's a prophet, that an angel or a spirit has actually spoken to him, and he's, he might actually be a prophet. Paul had been raised a Pharisee, trained as a Pharisee, and he understood what was going on, what the real debate was. But do you see what's at stake? Do you see what's really on trial? It isn't Paul. It's the gospel. You see, the Sadducees can't come to saving faith in Christ without forsaking some of their core beliefs some of their core understanding. They've got to abandon their um, their belief that there is no resurrection, that there are no angels, there is no spirit. Without the resurrection, you have no Christianity. That's exactly what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection is vital to a right understanding of the gospel. And without the resurrection, you do not have the gospel. You do not have biblical Christianity. And so Paul turns the tables. He he changes things so that he really is not the one on trial. The gospel is. He began speaking even before he was asked. He took the the leadership in this council meeting. He took the liberty to, um, to speak before he was spoken to, uh, to begin to, to teach and to address the council and to make sure that the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ got the spotlight. Maybe... Maybe there are times when we shy away from speaking because we think we just don't have the right. We hesitate to talk about Jesus because we haven't earned the right to be heard with these people, with this crowd, with this group. We don't know these people well enough, and so we want to be careful and sensitive, and we want to build a relationship with them. And, and that's good, and that's right, and that's, that, that's, that should be a goal. I'm not saying that we should never do that. But Paul here didn't know the room. He didn't know the people. I'm not really sure he should have been speaking without first being spoken to. He certainly could have cared more for his own preservation, his own well-being than for the salvation of those in the room or for any form of, of gospel proclamation. But for Paul... The gospel is foremost. The gospel is the most important. And he jumps straight into what matters more than anything else in the world. And finally, in this passage, we have a a plot to uh, conspiracy to kill Paul. There's a a group that has uh, bound themselves together by an oath. Uh, no eating, no drinking. We won't rest. We will make sure that Paul is put to death. And they even gather the chief priests, the elders, the council. They expect um, the Roman authorities to sort of uh, be in cahoots with them on this as well. Um, the, 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 the Jerusalem council is in on it. They know the deal. They hear the plan and they say, okay, that's a good idea. We'll do that. And and when he gets here, y'all can, I don't know, jump out from behind the wall, behind the curtains, out of the closet, whatever, uh, and and kill him. But Paul's young nephew got wind of this conspiracy. And so he went to see Paul and told Paul, Paul's... As a Roman citizen, yes, he's under arrest, but he's not really in a cell. He has some freedoms to receive visitors, certainly family members um but he's he's under the the watch and care of of Claudius Lysias, despite the fact that he's got a little bit of freedom um perhaps more than than most. And so Paul's nephew comes to see Paul and says, "Look, here's the deal; these guys are going to kill you." And so Paul grabs the centurion and says, "Hey, this guy's got something to tell Claudius Lysias." And so the centurion takes him to the tribune, and 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 there, um, uh, Claudius takes him by the hand. Uh, we're told, verse nineteen, which actually implies he may be. Like 10 or younger. I mean, this is a young boy. And explains to him um, about uh, this conspiracy, uh, tells him what's going on, um, and which, of course, led to uh, Paul being spared, uh, sent to Governor Felix, surrounded by a couple of hundred Roman soldiers. Uh, in the middle of the night, this little boy was willing, his, he had the knowledge, and, and he was willing to actually make sure he did something with that knowledge that he had, to step up and to speak to Paul uh, and, and to make sure Paul got um, His, the little boy participating, kind of stepping in, meant it led to Paul being sent to Governor Felix. This boy saved Paul's life. You know, God can use even the most unlikely people to preserve his kingdom. To preserve his church, to save, to spare his people. The reality is, it would have been a bit of a mockery to those all involved in this passage that a boy, a little boy, 40 men conspired to kill Paul. They got the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish council, the chief priests and elders, they got them involved and told them what was going on. And a boy thwarted the whole thing. It would have been a a bit of a mockery to these adults that a child could put an end to their plans. How do we apply this passage to us? Well, in addition to the... Couple of applications we made along the way. Um, first application is this whatever pain, whatever conflict, whatever trouble, whatever trial, whatever difficulty you are going through, whatever blues song you're singing today, no matter what, no matter where you are, look at verse 11 of chapter 23. The only time, and again, this is, this is, Jesus has stepped into Paul's cell, Paul's room, and said to him, take courage, for as you have uh, testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome, but notice the Lord stood by him whatever trial whatever pain whatever difficulty christ is with you this is not a promise this isn't a a statement of fact that's true of paul and not true of you whatever blues song you're singing jesus is with you a second Application is this look at the I guess the it's not really that tangled, but um paul's citizenship, so Paul's Jewish by birth, and so he has some responsibility to the and and was raised a Pharisee, and so the council has some role has some authority over him he's a Roman citizen, and so the Roman civil government has some authority over him and and Paul's in this predicament because the Jewish people are accusing him of violating Jewish customs and the temple and the people but the truth is Paul hasn't broken any he hasn't violated any Jewish laws and Claudius Lysias himself says I find no guilt in him he hasn't broken any of our laws if if anything he's guilty in their eyes but they can't put him to death for that so Uh, You know, he's kind of lost. Here's the thing. You and I may receive our mail at 35613 or 35611 or 35612 if you have a post office box. But that's not where your citizenship lies. It's not where your treasure lies. And that's not where your ultimate ruler is either. As citizens of the kingdom of Christ, our ruler, our ultimate authority, our final rule is Christ and him alone. This conflict all grows out of the fact that Paul's citizenship is in Rome and kind of in Israel, but primarily. The kingdom of Christ. And so we have to be asking ourselves constantly how can I serve the greater king even while living here in this particular zip code? Another application um, God's accomplishing his plan for Paul, for his church, for the kingdom, quite honestly, for us, even through Paul in this passage. He's at work in this world, and there is no civil magistrate. There is no ruling governor that can thwart the will of God. And God is working out his providence in a variety of ways, for and through a variety of people, Christians and non-Christians, rulers and citizens, Jews and Gentiles, boys and girls, men and women, adults and kids, all all of them. He's, He's orchestrating his will, his providence in and through all of them. And in fact... If you remember Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he was told he would be a missionary to the Gentiles, and he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. But he was also told that he would do so before kings. And up until this point, that hasn't happened. Jesus uses a boy. He uses the conflict with the council. He uses... Paul's Roman citizenship, he uses this Claudius Lysias and the centurion and a boy to put Paul before kings to accomplish his plan. Be encouraged, be comforted. You are a part of God accomplishing his plan in you and through you. Another application. Uh, We might do well to think back over our lives and thank either the people or at least thank God for the people he's brought into our lives to encourage us in our walk with him just imagine Paul sitting down at the end of his days, thinking back over his life and the people that God has used to put him where he is in that moment. And on that list would be his nephew. On that list would be Stephen, the deacon, whom Paul approved of his death. On that list would be Ananias, who was there when the scales fell from his eyes and and was a, a minister of God's grace to Paul and hundreds of others as well. Who has God used in your life to bring you where you are now? Perhaps a thank you, at least to God for his goodness and mercy to you. And one final application. Um, God is not in the business, this, this, I don't know how this would work in these days. Um, you know, you're told invest, um, you know, the best way to invest your IRA is to, to put it in the, the stock market, you know, invest in mutual funds and, and leave them there and keep them there for a long time. In the last few months, um, some of you were thinking, man, if I'd known then in January what I know now, I'd have sold, I'd have gotten out completely. And and God's not in the business of day trading. God's in the business of long-term investing. What do I mean by that? In this particular moment, Paul might think, he could think, that God's abandoning him, that things aren't turning out the way they're supposed to. But you and I need a longer view of the kingdom than just today or tomorrow. Uh, We're not day trading with the gospel. We don't walk away from an evangelistic interaction with someone where we've shared Christ with someone and they say no and go oh, and you know throw our hands up there's the ch- take the long view there 10 years later you may get a note that says thank you we would do well to take a 20 30 50 year view of the kingdom in us and around us rather than the instant grits microwavable version of the kingdom and of God's purposes. May may God be honored and glorified in us and through us and pleased to use us for the growth and advancement of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your work in our lives for the fact that uh, where we are right now really is a product of an infinite number of your sovereign hand at work uh, bringing about it's your providence it's you accomplishing your will father would you use us in the lives of others would you Give us wisdom as we interact with those over us, with those in authority over us, as we learn and and figure out how we can treat with honor and respect those in office over us, even if the people in that office, perhaps in their own personal lives, aren't worthy of that respect. Father, would you give us a long-term view of your kingdom? Would you remove from us that longing for the the instant grits, the minute rice version of our sanctification, of the the salvation of others around us, of the growth of grace covenant, of the growth of your kingdom, and give us the 20, 30, 50-year view. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.